This is an ABC podcast. $56.70 a day. That's a smidge under $400 a week. Or it will be if the budget measures around JobSeeker are passed. That has to cover accommodation, food, power bills, phone, maybe internet, medications, clothing, kids' expenses. How do they need shoes so often? Etc. 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 I'm Hilary Harper, broadcasting from Wurundjeri Land in Melbourne. We've been hearing a lot of facts and figures about welfare lately, but it's less common to hear what it's like living on income support. So that's what we're doing today on Life Matters. The opposition hasn't yet said if it will support the job seeker boost that Treasurer Jim Chalmers announced in last week's budget. The coalition's instead proposed letting people on job seeker work more hours before they lose benefits. In the back and forth of politics, though, welfare recipients can become a kind of category or a symbol. So today on Life Matters, I want to hear from you if you've lived on income support now or in the past, as I did. What is it actually like living on welfare payments in this country right now? What does it help you do? What does it stop you doing? I remember one thing very clearly. I remember feeling very, very lucky I could get dental work. My aunt worked as a receptionist in a dental practice and she put me on a payment plan. And that just wasn't available to a lot of the people that I knew in the same situation. So I'd love to hear your stories, whether there are things that became incredibly hard for you when you went on income support payments, or whether it's been a place where you could find your feet and get back into work. Dina Bowman is Principal Research Fellow in Work and Economic Security at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. She's been looking into this a lot lately. Dina, great to have you on the program. Uh, Hi, Hilary. And Catherine Eagles with us today too. She's Principal Solicitor at the Welfare Rights and Advocacy Service in Western Australia. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Hilary. Dina, any one of us could experience unemployment at a given time, but paint me a picture of the people who tend to be in that situation in Australia. Are there common threads? Well, I think we've got to kind of tease out who we're talking about when we're talking about people who are unemployed. Um, There are different data sets, so you can uh, be defined as unemployed uh, according to the ABS, and you know the the figures that come out from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 3.5% are estimated to be unemployed. But there's another data set which is more uh, administrative, meaning that it's um, it's not a survey. It's based on the uh, you know the number of people who receive job seeker payment, and so they can also be referred to as unemployed. The thing is that many people on job seeker payment aren't necessarily unemployed. Um, indeed, uh, for the latest figures, around 23% had earnings, so they had work, but perhaps not sufficient, so they needed to top it up with job seeker payment. Similarly, around 43% of people on job seeker payment um, are deemed to have partial capacity to work, meaning they have uh, disability or health conditions, so they're not able to work full-time, but they're not eligible for the disability support pension. And so it's uh, the other thing, a lot of people on job seeker payment The bulk uh, have been on it long term. Um, Prior to the the introduction of job seeker payment, there was the New Start allowance. And New Start allowance was designed as a short term payment 
you know, so in between jobs that you could, um, you know, fall on hard times, have payment and then get back into work. But um, over the years, this has changed. Um, So even though JobSeeker payment is still designed as a a short-term payment, um, people are on it long-term. And so you've got people, um, you know, I think according to the March figures, only 32% had been on JobSeeker payment for less than a year. That means the bulk has been on it for longer than a year. And a year is how we would define um, long-term unemployment. So if you've been out of the labour force or without a job for a year, it's really going to be hard to get one. So, Dina, why is that, given that you know we, we have such low unemployment right now? Why is there the two-thirds of people plus on uh, JobSeeker for longer than a year? Uh, because, as I said, a lot of them have partial capacity to work, they're unwell or have disability, they may have caring responsibilities, um, and um, uh, they may also ha- um, have uh, other challenges that prevent them to, to get work. And a lot of it depends where you live. If you, the, the longer you're on the payment, as inadequate as job seeker payment, the poorer you get. So you won't necessarily be able to maintain a car, you mightn't be able to, uh, you, you know, fix your glasses. You wouldn't be able to afford um, the, the normal kind of things that one would expect um, that would actually enable you to get a job. So it becomes a kind of a, a cycle of poverty. And Catherine Eagle, that question of being whether you're on job seeker or disability support is interesting, isn't it? Tell me about some of the challenges people can encounter if they if they do hit that run of of uh, ill health or injury, but want to shift onto the DSP. Yeah, uh, yeah. So disability support pension is designed for people who are going to be able to, um, or sorry, who are going to need to be on the payment for at least two or more years. And often for people when they contact us, um, they might be either early on where they've just had an accident or an injury or they've just become really unwell and so they can't establish that they're going to be um, uh, unable to work for at least two or more years. The other issue that our clients often have is they can't get the medical evidence they need because they can't access medical uh, specialists to get uh, reports written to prove that their conditions are going to be long-term conditions or permanent conditions, particularly if you live in a rural, regional area. But even in the major cities now, if you're reliant on the public health system, there can be really long waits to see a specialist and even if you were able to get in and see a specialist after perhaps waiting 12 months or 15 months, they're not necessarily going to be willing to spend their time writing a report to Centrelink when they've got a long list of people waiting to get assessed or or treated for their conditions. We're speaking today about what it's like to live on welfare payments. You heard from Dina Bowman from the Brotherhood of St Lawrence just before about the idea that the longer you're on there, the harder it is to get into work because you get poorer and that makes the practicalities of sprucing up for a job interview difficult, among other things. And you're hearing now from Catherine Eagle about some of the complexities in the system if your experience falls between the definitional uh, sections of the bureaucracy. I'd love to hear from you if living on 
income support is something that you are doing now or have done in the past, as I have done. Tell me about what it's like day to day and whether it is sustainable for you. Are there ways that you've found to make it work or do you feel that uh, it's it's not working for you? Catherine Eagle, uh, are there common threads across the people who come to you needing legal advocacy other than just being on unemployment benefits? Yeah, so we are a community legal centre, Hilary, and that means that clients only come to us if there's some legal issue with their payments that they're wanting help with. So um, I was thinking about people on Job Seeker that come to us, and so a, a big group of them are those people who perhaps have been on Job Seeker um, for more than two years, and during that whole time they've been exempt from having to comply with looking for work obligations because of their illnesses. So they've got chronic pain, chronic illnesses. Um, it's recognised that they can't comply with um, with looking for work. So they put in uh, medical certificates, which uh, give them an exemption for 13 weeks at a time. And those medical exemptions are supposed to be for temporary conditions. And so at some point after 18 months or so, Centrelink will say, look, those conditions aren't temporary anymore, so you cannot have an exemption. Um, and so the person thinks, oh, well, that means it's permanent, so that means I'll be eligible for disability support pension. They put in a claim for disability support pension and they're rejected. And the reason they're given is that their conditions aren't permanent within the meaning of disability support pension. So you can imagine that by the time they find a service like ours, they're very frustrated, they're desperate, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing because they really are in those gaps between um, between the two payments. Another group that we see now, particularly with the rise in rental costs, are people who perhaps have only been on the payment for a short period of time, but because of the low rate of the payment, they can't afford their rent. And so they're getting into rental arrears. They've been given a notice to um, terminate the tenancy and they're desperate because they're about to become homeless. Um, these are people who um, maybe are old, slightly older, so maybe late 40s. They may have been working in unskilled or, or physically demanding jobs that they're not able to maintain anymore. And um, the rental situation in Western Australia, which I know is similar around the country, means that they just have no housing options. Yeah, that lack of options is something I think that's that's coming up as a theme already. We're speaking with Catherine Eagle, Principal Solicitor at the Welfare Rights and Advocacy Service in Western Australia, and Dina Bowman, Principal Research Fellow in Work and Economic Security at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. We're looking, I guess, at the, the tangibles and the intangibles of living on welfare payments today in this country. The the practicalities, does it give you enough for food on the table and getting around? But also that, that sense of, you know, things like your relationship with Centrelink, how does that make you feel? That uh, sense of your own future possibilities, does income support help with that or not? Cheryl's called in from Wagga. Hello, Cheryl. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks for calling. What's what's it been like for you? Well, um, I had an issue with um, workplace bullying at one stage and it was very, very traumatic. And um, every time I went back to another job, I sort of got um, PTSD and I really got nervous and everything like that. And um, once I was actually sacked and the other times I, I just resigned because I felt I, I wasn't up to the standard. But it was a psychological problem. 
and I don't think anybody chooses to be in poverty and on on the on the unemployment benefit. I think there's probably they've got some issue that that they're frightened to go to work, and I was. So Cheryl, what was it like for you, kind of being caught between that rock and the hard place? Did you feel like you could stay on unemployment benefits, and and that was better than going back to work, or not? No, no, definitely not. I did try, but the the longer I was unemployed, the worse it got because you know I had no nice clothes to wear to an interview. I couldn't afford. Sometimes I couldn't afford bus fares, you know, and. Centrelink um, at that stage, I don't know if they still do it, but you had to go to a job provider every day. Now, my my job provider was two suburbs um, away, and I used to walk. I was in my 50s at that time. I used to walk to the job provider to save the bus fare, but I had to take the bus back because it was too hot um, at that time of the year. And one of the job providers told me it's unlikely you'll get a job, and she wouldn't she wouldn't even look at anything that I written. I'd written or anything like that. She just totally ignored me. So, Cheryl, and, um, what changed for you? What changed? Yeah. Um, I, I did I did another degree. And, um, yeah, actually it was social work. I did another degree and, um, yeah, I started um, uh, building up self-esteem because social work's very much, you know, about the person you are and that sort of thing. And um, I specialised in counselling. Um, which was excellent for me because you you have to be very aware of yourself and what's happening to you. Yes, and I realised that this work, workplace bullying really, really um, was a, a really detrimental thing to my mental health. And, um, yeah, I worked through that by counselling, having counselling myself. Cheryl, I'm so pleased there was that turning point for you and that, that helped you get back on track. Thanks so much for sharing, though, that experience with us. Do tell us what it's been like for you, either now or in the past, and whether there's been a turning point like there was for Cheryl or whether it's just a bit of a grind still. We're speaking today about what it's like to live on welfare in this country. Brianna Casey is someone who's seeing the shift in people's experiences uh, over the years. She's the CEO of Food Bank Australia. Australia. Brianna, welcome. Good morning. Now, you spent several days last week at Food Bank sites in South Australia. What were you hearing from the people on the ground there? It was absolutely devastating and incredibly confronting to hear the reality of living on JobSeeker and related payments. I met with extraordinary women who have escaped family and domestic violence. I met with older Australians whose only social interaction in a day comes from being able to offer a family member or a a neighbour a cup of tea and a biscuit. These are people being forced to make impossible choices about where their scarce resources are being applied. So how do people make those impossible choices? I mean, you can only cut down so much on food. What if people are going without? You're spot on. And they are going without food. It's not that they're cutting down on food. They're simply going without it. And what we're seeing is people who are living on those job seeker payments are sacrificing they, if they happen to be in permanent accommodation once they are paying rent, then they are paying for transport to and from job interviews or or from scarce employment that they might have. 
um, energy costs and so on, there is simply nothing left at the end of the day to pay for food. And I met with people last week who are travelling to Food Bank because that is the only way that they can access food relief because it's not down to where can I apply my last few dollars in a day in a supermarket. It is I have no dollars left and I need these essential items. So these are people who are coming to Food Bank looking for breakfast cereal, milk, bread, the absolute basics to feed themselves and their families. Brianna, who is turning to Food Bank for help? We've heard before about uh, the issue of underemployment as well as unemployment. Mm. Is it as diverse as we've been hearing? Absolutely. We're seeing all walks of life needing food bank at the moment. Absolutely seeing people who are unemployed for a range of reasons. And we heard Cheryl just now talking about her example. There are so many stories like Cheryl's out there. We are talking to victim survivors. We're talking to people who might have a mental health condition or a physical condition that prevents them from seeking work. Um, Underemployment remains a huge challenge. We've got a number of people who are able to get a few shifts at work, but it's not enough when we want to look at balancing those skyrocketing expenses around incomes that just aren't keeping up with that expense growth. We're also seeing people in full employment. In fact, more than 50% of households experiencing food insecurity right now have at least one adult in employment. So it's affecting a growing cohort of people across Australia. And unfortunately, we're not keeping up. We know tonight half a million households are going to struggle to put a meal on the table. That's today, tonight. This isn't into the future. So when we're talking about cost of living, when we're talking about inflation, when we're talking about the realities of a budget being handed down last week, let's forget the numbers. Behind every one of those numbers is a family member, a household, a person who's really struggling right now. The reasons are many and varied, but the solutions are pretty simple. We have to lift the lowest rates of income so that food stops being a luxury and it's actually something people can include in the household budget. And we're going to talk a little more about the, the kind of biggest structural and policy issues around the rate and the experience of people living on welfare as we progress through today's program on Life Matters. Brianna Casey, CEO of Food Bank Australia, what's it like for people to have to turn to Food Bank for those basics, you know, daily staples? Is it something they feel comfortable with? Do they rock up looking, you know, cheerful and confident to Food Bank? <laughs> It's funny, when we look at the reasons why people aren't aren't accessing food relief, it's not a lack of knowledge, it's not a lack of understanding of where they can seek that support. It is unfortunately down to shame, embarrassment and stigma. And we are redoubling our efforts across every food bank across the country to make sure people feel welcome and safe and that they can come into food bank and not feel ashamed of the fact that they need food relief but to be commended for the fact that they're making a really brave step. And we know particularly for single parent households, it can be incredibly confronting to own the fact that they can't feed themselves or they can't feed their children. And we are here to tell everyone that's listening, there is no shame in asking for help. Every one of us knows someone who fell on tough times throughout COVID for any number of reasons. And I implore everyone to remember the sympathy and empathy that we had for people when they did fall on those tough times, because it's no different now. In fact, the challenges are far more significant for many people across Australia right now than they were at the height of COVID. And we need to make sure that people who are reaching out for food relief, who need emergency relief, financial counselling, have people wrap their arms around them and remind them 
that someone cares. And if that's one thing that we can do at Food Bank, we can make food one less thing for people to worry about. But also we want people to know that we see them. We support them. We're here for them. And if we can provide them with a meal or multiple meals and a way to access wraparound support services, it's a reminder that there is a tomorrow and that hopefully we can make that a better tomorrow. And I know it's difficult to make that first phone call or that first visit, but at Food Bank, we are going to help you find culturally appropriate, nutritious food. And if that's going to give you the the leg up, the, the boost that you need to be able to access uh, a job interview, to be able to go home in the afternoon uh, and feed your family, then that's a pretty great outcome. And we're getting questions via text already, Brianna, saying, how can I support Food Bank? Foodbank.org.au. Kim says it would be great to have a list of contact points and drop-off points for Food Bank. Uh, and, yep, they have an online presence that uh, lays all that out. Brianna Casey, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Brianna Casey is the CEO of Food Bank Australia and she's been on the ground in South Australia recently seeing exactly how hard it is. Dina Bowman, as someone who works at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, researching and putting together reports on, on what it's like on welfare, that concept of dignity comes up again and again. Why is it hard to live with dignity, apart from the actual uh, practicalities of the amount of money you have, where where is uh, the dignity being stripped away from people if they're living on income support? Well, I think it's uh, a di- dignity is is fundamental. When we talk about economic dignity um, uh, as well as economic security. I think the uh, over the past few decades, um, the way social security has been. Um, uh, framed and, and designed, and we talk about social security rather than welfare because it's for all of us um, and it's important um, to have that security and uh, social cohesion. But the way it's been designed over the last few decades has really been, um, I suppose there's been, a, a, whether deliberate or not, and, and there's some uh, discussion about that, it, it's it's been designed in a way to be exclusionary rather than enabling. Um, when you look back at the robo-debt um, uh, experience where people were purported to have debts um, and treated in, in terrible ways and, and, and hounded um, uh, uh, to, uh, in relation to these debts, that, that casts a long shadow. Um, I know the people that we uh, work with and speak with talk about uh, the sense of the incredible fear of of uh, incurring a debt. They they want to do the right thing, but often they don't understand how payments, um, uh, what the components of payments are, and uh, and they, they they may well take an advance because it's, the payment is inadequate. But then they have to pay that back, which means their payment is even less than it would have been. Um, there are also issues around. Uh, uh, the, the way that people are, are, are treated. Often um, the staff in Centrelink and in employment services are good, decent people, um, but the way the system is constructed means that uh, the, the, they can uh, people talk about being uh, treated uh, in like a tick and flick rather than being enabled and supported and helped. Um, it's just like, uh, have you complied with your mutual obligations, yes or no? Um, and people worry about that because if you don't 
comply with your mutual obligations, then there's the risk that your payment will be suspended. Um, which uh, obviously is, uh, even if it's an inadequate payment, something is better than nothing. Really interesting text coming in on this. Sophie says, I don't use the heater, I don't use the car as I can't pay the rego, petrol, I don't go out except for the supermarket where I add up the total budget of around $20 each trip to feed myself and two children. I don't go to the doctors as even a pap smear is charged. I don't have a life and I live in shame and humiliation and it's usually women like myself, says Sophie, who've left domestic violence. You ask what it's like, it's bloody obvious. It's all blah, blah, blah to me, talk, 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 no real change or improvement or action. Tell us what it's like for you, whether it uh, is sustainable for you. Are there things that you've had to go without? Are there ways that you try to cope on income support? Social Security is what the department used to be called, the Department of Social Security, and now it's not. How do you go on welfare payments, Social Security payments in this country right now? And text in, the reason so many people on JobSeeker are long-term unemployed is because of the faulty job services programs. As someone who worked in mental health and drugs and alcohol, I saw repeatedly that here people were not given any proper assistance to get jobs. It's scandalous, but nothing is ever done. Catherine Eagle, Principal Solicitor at the Welfare Rights and Advocacy Service. What's your view on the mutual obligation system and the job service provision system? Uh, yes, well, it certainly um, can help people who are really ready to get straight back into work, but it's real, a real struggle for many people. And for all the reasons that some of the texts have said, um, complying with your obligations, so the way it works is you have to sign a job plan that is supposed to be a personalised job plan for you before you get your first payment. So if you're going on to job seeker payment, you have to agree to a plan before you can be paid. So it's not really a situation of sitting down and working out what do you need, what are your barriers to employment and how would you be best helped to find work. So forget about having the money to get to the appointments and the bus fares and having rego on your car if you're in a regional or rural area. Um, and then it is a bit of a tick and flick. And if you don't um, comply, you, your payments can be suspended or stopped. And there are hundreds of thousands of suspensions. Um, people are, are the, the new system, which is an online system, again, works for some people. But there are people who probably end up on that system where the computer's making decisions, again, about whether they've met their obligations for that fortnight and they're panicking because their system's not working and they can't get through to someone and they're not sure if they're going to get their payment. Um, and I think people feel like it's, it's uh, a lot of obligations that they know are not going to get them any closer to a job. So they're given things they have to do, but it's very... Um, soul-destroying if you can see that none of those things are going to do anything apart from keep you busy during that fortnight. They're not going to get you any closer to work. Dina Bowman from the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, the, the, a lot of the discussions we've been having today uh, bring up the question, I guess, of what is people's relationship with Centrelink? Is there a, an issue with the way Centrelink treats people as, as a body? Well, I think that it, it's, um, as I said, I think over the years it's become more um, exclusionary. Is that about the people and, and, working there, though, or, or something oh, about the culture? About, 
I don't think it's about the people. It's around the policies and the system. I mean, there can be good and decent people in uh, working in Centrelink um, who uh, would try their best to, to help out. But what we hear is often, you know, someone will go and see someone at Centrelink if they're lucky enough to actually get onto Centrelink um, because part of the challenge is, you know, as... Um, you know, you have to call and you might be waiting for uh, th- three, four hours and then it will just, the the, the, the phone will go dead. Um, the people will be trying to com- communicate. Um, often a complex situation, um, but it's hard to get to speak to a person. When they finally get to speak to the person, um, then they may find that when they try to call back um, that there's somebody else and uh, there's a, they're told a different information. So it can be very um, confusing and uh, it's not, um, uh, you know, even getting access to someone to be able to talk to, uh, to, to explain the situation, it's not easy. Um, there, we, there used to be more social workers, for example, in Centrelink that could help people with, um, you know, with their situations, but um, that there's been a reduction in the number of, of social workers. Um, it can be just the physical um, uh, sort of layout of, of, of Centrelink offices can be quite um, um, maybe not welcoming and um, confronting. Uh, people t- talk about shame and the stigma of um, you know of, of going to, to Centrelink, um, and uh, I think and that's from the the, the system, which um, perhaps is designed to uh, to not focus so much on entitlements. And enabling, but rather um, uh, you know, trying to exclude people um, from from uh, you know what their entitlements might be. So it's uh, what we really need is is that kind of investment in support and enabling people um, and getting them on back on their feet. Uh, when someone talked about the relationship with employment services. Employment services, as currently designed, um, even though they, they, we've got the new Workforce Australia, it's they still seem to be the same problems of that lack of support, that the lack of the focus on the short term of getting people into a job, any job, um, even though it may not be what will really help in the longer term. So we need a focus on longer term investment, longer term support, which will pay off in the end because um, I think it was one of the earlier callers who managed to do a degree um, and, and get back on her feet. That's the kind of support we need rather than short term hassling. We actually need some longer term investment and support. Quite a few texts backing you up there. Dina one says, it is exactly a tick and flick. And Margaret in Canberra says, as a librarian, I needed a new cataloguer. So we advertised. An employment agency sent us a woman whose experience was that she had made silk books in China, apparently. Thanks for that, Margaret. What is it like trying to get back into work or just surviving on uh, social security payments in Australia at the moment? We've been hearing various uh, news outlets saying, look, some people are just being fussy. There are a lot of jobs available right now. It's not that hard. What are your thoughts? If you've lived on uh, welfare support, as I have in the past, What does it feel like when you try and get back into work? I still have this memory of it being hard to imagine myself 
into a different kind of future after a certain number of years on uh, on the dole. It was, yeah, it was difficult to see how I could get out. What's been your experience? Jane's called in from Hobart. Jane, you're on Job Seeker. What's it like for you? Um, I'd just like to say the lady that just is was speaking, she's nailed it all on the head. Um, my situation is temporary, as I'm supposing a lot of job seeker people is. I've had a lot of trauma to deal with, um, which takes time. Um, but I've just felt that the Centrelink itself is uh, not supportive. It's actually can be quite mean and derogatory. They will ring you on a private number. Now, people that have been through domestic violence and have been harassed on the phone, they don't want to answer private calls. Mm. They actually call you on a private number and they say, hello, it's Centrelink, give me all your details to verify who you are. Now, they do that to everybody. So you're giving this person, you have no idea who they are, it's a private number and you have to hand over all your details or they will not deal with you. So that's confronting. Oh, and I've said to them and said to them, please, can you text ahead? I, w- I don't answer private calls. I've been getting I've um, been getting a lot of calls from Sri Lanka and Papua New Guinea, and I just don't, you know, scammers. <clears throat> I just don't answer private calls. But um, they're not happy with that. So here a couple of months ago, I got a medical certificate, um, and I was told by the Centrelink lady, you have to bring it here. Now that's fifty uh, minute drive for me. Um, I said, I'm 50 minutes away. Can I post it? Can I upload it? Can I get it to you any other way? Can someone drop it in? No, I had to take it in personally, which made me very anxious. Um, so I did take it there in the end and I took it in and she simply said I had to leave it at the office. I had this feeling when I got there that it wasn't going to go well. So I actually put my phone on film record. So I put my phone on film record. I went in. I had it shining on. I had it you know, aimed at my form and I put in the envelope. I took it to the desk. It was all very polite. I left pleasantly. That was on the Thursday. Monday morning at 8.15, I had an irate woman from that Centrelink office ring me up, private number, demanding I give my details, which I did. And she said, we're not going to process your claim, your certificate. And I said, why? And she said, because of how you acted on Thursday and I said pardon me she said you came in and threw your form across the desk at two of my staff and I said I did not and she said yes you did two of my staff said you did now she didn't ask me any other that's exactly how the conversation went I said well actually I'm so glad now that I actually recorded that so I'd like to show you and she said oh you can't do that and she was horrified and then she hung up on me and I haven't heard from them since so you don't know whether the certificate's been processed yet? Yeah, yep, it was. It was processed immediately after that phone call. Wow. But she didn't ring back and say, you know, she would have had film in her office. It would have been recorded. Why didn't she, you know, she could have seen it. But she rang me up Monday morning, quarter past eight, mm. and, and was nasty. Said, you did this and you did that. I said, no, I didn't. And I've recorded. I've still got it on my phone. I've still got the film on my phone. I bet it's going to stay there for some time, Jane, just in case. That sounds like a set of really confronting experiences. And a lot of people backing you up on the text line, Jane, too. Your call is spot on recalls from Centrelink. Thanks for your call. Uh, Darren's in Tasmania. Welcome to you, Darren. Yeah, I've um, just a couple of quick comments. I've had few problems with Centrelink. They've been pretty good. Uh, the phone call issue with the private number is a problem, uh, and the rate is terrible. I mean, if you're paying, say, 300 a week in rent, mm. 
50 in power. Um, well, there's 700 gone. If you're trying to run a car and have a phone, e- email, internet to get a job, let alone the petrol to put in the car and maybe to save in case you get a puncture, forget it. The employment providers uh, don't do anywhere near well enough. The money that is spent on them is terrible. They're a tick and flick. They do not take the concerns and they don't have the ability. The people there are fine, but they don't have the ability to take mental illness concerns to the level they need to be taken. And Darren, I mean, you're in Tasmania, which has a particular set of employment opportunities and and constraints on it. How well do they do at tailoring uh, their service to your particular situation there? Well, it's pretty ordinary. I mean, you've got to, if you want to do the mutual obligation, you've got to do so many jobs a month. And I I do mainly seasonal work nowadays, but um, so you can be in and out of work and there's always something coming, but the timing of it and everything is, can be poor. But the mutual obligation thing, once, (laughs) when you're in Bernie in Tasmania, there ain't many people really that many. There might be 20 jobs out there. Now, you go through those 20 jobs and ringing those employers in in two or three fortnights. Um, yeah, and I mean, I know the employers are getting upset, but the system forces us to keep using their names and numbers as a, for our mutual obligation. Yes, and I know employer uh, peak bodies have said, look, this is a drag for us too. Can we change it? This is a crazy situation. Darren, thanks so much for sharing that with us. All the best for Thank the future. You. Thank you very much. It can be a very hard grind when you've been there for a few years, as Darren has. Dina Bowman, just quickly, if you're an older person too, are there particular constraints that might apply? We, we've been hearing a lot lately about age discrimination. What happens when you try and look for jobs if you've been on income support for a little while and you're approaching retirement age anyway? Well, it's it's really hard if you're a mature age and, you know, uh, if, the longer you've been unemployed, first of all, the, the more likely, the less likely it is that you're going to get a job. Um, and add to that, uh, that you're an older person, um, it, it makes it really difficult. We know in, from talking to employers that um, age is, is a concern, but actually it's the length of time you've been out of the workforce um, and concern about whether you've um, got a pre-existing injury or a health condition, which might um, have you know they're, they're worried about uh, employers are worried about um, 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 the what do you call it the workers' compensation um, uh, claims. So so there's those kind of issues. We know from uh, mature age men, you know, if they've worked in um, physical work, uh, they may need to they may no longer be able to do that. Um, so they um, will need some. Uh, skills assessment, uh, recognition, and perhaps retraining so that they can work in other areas. And um, similarly with uh, other other workers, uh, if, if you've done a particular type of work, um, you know, with technological change, etc., maybe things that you've worked as a secretary before and um, you, the, you don't have up-to-date um, knowledge of software packages, etc. So you may need... Um, uh, skills assessment and retraining, but uh, it's it's really tough because when you look at uh, now, I think from July it'll be you, you need to be 67 to get the age pension. So can you imagine 
um, being, say, in your early 60s and unemployed. Indeed, a man we spoke with um, recently, he's living in a converted shed at the back of his friend's place, um, was made redundant um, on job seek payment. Now, in his early 63, he's going to have to wait for another four years and he's in a rural area. What kind of work is he going to be able to get? Um, so there's real concern and we, we need more um, personalised support rather than what often tends to happen with employment services for, for older people in that situation. They're basically parked too hard yeah, until I think they're parked. Tim might be able to uh, help us understand this a bit better, calling in from Queensland. Hello, Tim. Hello. Uh, you can tell us a bit more about being an older person trying to look for work. Yeah, I was a highly paid blue-collar worker miner. And um, during the mining downturn, I was made redundant at 58 by SMS message too. Ooh, ouch. Um, at 58, uh, no, I, I tried to get work. Nobody was going to employ me. You know, you're getting interviewed by a 20-something who doesn't want to employ their grandfather. There's just no work for us. And that's it. So I've had to wait. I've just got the pension. I'm 66 and a half. So I waited eight and a half years on unemployment benefit, and it's for pets. And the biggest thing is the psychological drain. You worry all the time. How did you get through those eight or so years? With great difficulty. Like I said, it's it's more it's physical, but it's also psychological. Like I live rural because it's the only place I can afford to live. And I have to have a car because there's no public transport. So you've got to run your car. My car's 25 years old. You constantly worry it's going to break down and I don't have the money to fix it. I'm lucky I've got family near me and, and they've been able to help out at times. But if you're on your own, I, I really feel for people. Yeah, that psychological thing is interesting. We asked on our Facebook page, Tim, how how do you get by if you're on income support? And some people are saying, look, we should uh, try and get the politicians to live on this amount per day. Yeah, and others saying, one. well, yeah, but, but others are saying, look, they wouldn't get it because if they only had to do it for a week, that doesn't take oh, into account the psychological effects. Tell me a bit more about that, Tim. Why, why does it get harder as time goes on? Well, I, I, I've... My body's broken, you know, hard work. I've got so many things wrong with my body. And and it, it, it's the physical pain as well, you know. But it's more, it's that constant fear. It's a fear of Centrelink or your job service provider cutting you off for whatever reason. There doesn't seem many rhyme and reason from some people I've talked to what's happened to them. And and But it is the worry. It's, it's, it's like I said, I've got, to, I've got to have a car. If I lose my car, I cannot go anywhere. Exactly. You know? Tim, and, look- and, and can I just yeah. raise one more quick point? Go for it. The the RBA Bank is deliberately trying to push up unemployment. They have what they call the NARU, the Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment, right? It is a deliberate policy of the Reserve Bank to have unemployment around 5% to keep downward pressure on wages. Then they turn around, the government and the newspapers and everybody else turns around and, and gives us a hard time. We're carrying the back of the country. And yet they demonise us as some sort of bludgers that sit around and play PlayStation all day. That's an interesting point, Tim. Thank you so much for raising that. We did get a text saying, this seems unkind, but no, many people's life choices do lead them directly into poverty. Many simply avoid education well before relational choices are made. Yes, many too have a difficult start in life, but others from such beginnings have taken the rich opportunities offered in this country. This country is full of poor bugger me people. That's from Mark. Uh, Dina Bowman... What is, what's your response to that? Is there a hardcore of people who just don't want to work and would rather 
have the unemployment benefits? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't be able to say, honestly. I think that kind of attitude is... Um, it, it's it's really outdated, I think. Um, the vast majority of people want to work, they want to contribute, um, like the previous caller, they have worked, um, they have contributed. Um, you've got to also look at, at people's opportunities. If, if you live in a, a rural or regional area, there may be very few opportunities for work, particularly if you're an older person, have health conditions, caring responsibilities, etc. So rather than de- focusing on a deficit and uh, a sort of negative view of, of people on, on income support, I reckon we should be looking at what they, have, what they can contribute and how we can enable them to contribute rather than um, denying opportunity as we are at the moment. Um, like the previous caller said, it, it, and you could hear in his voice the the, the, the pain um, of being, um, you know, long-term unemployed um, and, and what that means in terms of the deprivation of, of, um, of opportunity, of, of having to worry all the time about um, whether your car is going to work, how you're going to get a meal, etc. I don't think anyone would choose that. I mean... There would be so few people who would choose to live in dire poverty. Um, uh, We we shouldn't be focusing on that. We should be focusing on the bulk of people who uh, need support uh, and uh, and opportunity to be able to make a contribution. We're speaking with Dina Bowman, Principal Research Fellow in Work and Economic Security at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. And our guest today too, Catherine Eagle, Principal Solicitor at the Welfare Rights and Advocacy Service in Western Australia. A couple of texts on our uh, last caller. Job seeker, the only welcome for the over 55s is at Bunnings, the Australian Electoral Commission and the Australian Bureau of Statistics when there's a census. Drew says, I was on Job Seeker after completing a PhD. A low point was at a supermarket when my groceries were all packed. I tried to pay with my card and found there was no money in my account. After an hour waiting on the phone to Centrelink, I was told my payment had been cancelled because I hadn't fulfilled some requirement. This episode triggered an anxiety condition, says Drew. And Robert from Canberra says, it's appalling that one of your callers mentioned Centrelink as a place of fear. Just shocking. And I know that's something that Dina's research has borne out, that a lot of people feel a significant amount of anxiety every time they have to deal with Centrelink. But I'd be interested in your thoughts too. Is is being on income support a place where you can find your feet in some sense? Is it a reset point that does help you in any way? because we've been hearing a lot of negative stories today. We've got time for a couple more callers before we wind up on Life Matters today. Astara's in Bellingen. Hi, Astara. You've had some experience over the years here and there with Centrelink. What's it been like for you? Yeah. um, Well, look, firstly, I just want to give some context. I'm a degree-qualified illustrator. I worked in the performing arts and lots of different areas, and you'd know, um, you know, being... In that sector, you know, money ebbs and flows, and at times I've had to turn towards um, new step, new start, quite begrudgingly. Um, I don't enjoy the process, um, but after being a mum, I um, tried to return back to work. My husband's working full time, and uh, one of the instances we had was very challenging. Was um, we we had our child um, vaccinated. Sorry, it's a bit hard to done. hear you, Estara. You had a child oh, vaccinated. Did yes. You say? Yep. Yes, yes. So he was coming up for his booster um, and he... Can you hear me okay? 
uh, it kind of ebbs in and out. If you could stick it as close to your mouth as possible, that'd be great. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. That's great. Um, yes, so he was coming up for his booster shot but had flu symptoms um, and was sus- we we found that our childcare rebate was suspended. So um, what happened was we were unable to get him vaccinated because he wasn't healthy enough to be vaccinated and within two and a half weeks we were charged over $2,500 of childcare um, to be able to continue working and I w- actually went through an appeal process to try and get the rebate um, returned um, and to be um, refunded, uh, we were denied that. And I even went to the, the um, immunisation nurse. We did everything in the protocol. Oh, we're going to have to let you go, I'm afraid, Astara. That line is just too bad. But that sounds like a really difficult situation and having to suddenly take a $2,000 hit in a family budget where, as you say, the income ebbs and flows is really hard. Phil has called in from Wellington. Hi, Phil. Yes, uh, Hillary, our third conversation, last one was April the 3rd. Oh, there you go. What a memory. So tell yeah. me about being on income support, Phil. What's it been like for you? Well, I was on a wage supplement back, at, back in 1988. I'm 76 years young. I'm still willing to work. I'm a, I'm a, I, I actually help kids who, to learn. any case, um, at that point, my boss had gone away because, I, as I said, I had a wage supplement. He'd gone away, hadn't paid me. I had to go to a charity they were saying, oh, we'll help you budget. I don't need to be budgeting. If you need the money back, the 20 bucks, I will give that to you when my bus comes back. But I had to go and tell them all my details. Wrong person. Oh, oh. we'll have to go and change you to another one. So I had to tell them all again what I what I told the first person, which really irritated me no end. Um, I lived at that time in Coonabarabra, and I had a, with a job in Broken Hill, no money to travel to Broken Hill, of course. If it wasn't for my mum, then I wouldn't have been able to go to Broken Hill. And I was teaching out there all together 10 years of TAFE there in, in Wellington. Um, I, Because I don't have internet connection, because it's another cost, mm. I, uh, I can't be employed by any of the schools because they contact people by internet. And I said, yes, but I do have a telephone. You can ring me, as, which is, has happened before. But no, they prefer to contact people by internet. I know exactly. You're really it, it sounds like a, a whole range of factors just tying together to make things extremely difficult. Phil, appreciate your call today. A lot of people wanting to join this discussion on Life Matters. I want to ask a quick question of Catherine Eagle, who's Principal Solicitor at the Welfare Rights and Advocacy Service in Western Australia. Catherine, uh, some might wonder if it's hard for people on income support, not only because the rate is low, but perhaps also if there are financial literacy issues issues. What's your sense from, from working in advocacy? Look, it's not about, uh, I think as the caller says, if your rate is so low, it's almost impossible to budget. So, it, it, you know, you're budgeting to say, can I afford food or not? So, look, there might be people who will go and see a financial counsellor and get some assistance, but with, with a rate that is so low, it's, it's really not a question of, of budgeting. Yeah, good to address that point. Thank you. Jenny is called in from UK. Jenny, uh, as so many of us have done, have used Centrelink off and on at various times. How has that gone for you? 
Um, well, I'm 64. I've got three more years to go before I'm entitled to the pension. I have a 15-hour-a-week mutual obligation while juggling being um, the daughter of a 92-year-old whose father's just died. I've got a brain-injured son and a child and a grandchild who needs help. And I, my advice to people is to get an ABN and start a small little business that you can just operate from very close to home because then you can earn a little bit extra and that helps you but I don't pay rent I have no electricity and I live from the cigarette lighter in my car which is phone and lamp and DVD player and I'm quite happy like that because I have some land when I bought on a commune very many years ago when it was cheap but I'm highly educated and I found in rural areas that was very difficult to get work and I'm so I applaud the government for giving women um, their children um, to stay at home till 14 now so that they can actually bring children up the way they should be brought up and that's a wonderful thing but there was a report done by the Unemployed Workers Union head fellow that was read on ABC National quite some time ago and he had fully dismantled what was wrong with the whole mutual obligation and working for the dole and the payment and his report was not accepted or not taken on and if people look at that report it really deals with all of these issues that we're going through. The worst part for me is that my son who was brain injured, hit by a car when he was seven, I cannot get him help and how can a brain injured person do mutual obligation, attend job networks, apply for a disability pension when it's all online and it's my fifth attempt to get him help and as far as I can work out there's no advocate that can help me do it because it's only over the uh, phone through a Centrelink office and he cannot do all those hoops and he can't even have money to live on when he goes through a crisis he doesn't have money to eat because he can't even do the job network um, obligations. And that's something that's really difficult as a parent. Catherine Eagle just quickly what options are available for someone in Jenny's situation? I think UK might be in New South Wales. There's a welfare rights centre in New South Wales that she could call and see if they are able to help. The Welfare Rights Centre. Excellent news. Thank you. Jenny, thanks for your call. Uh, Dina Bowman, we're rapidly drawing to the end of the show. What would you like to see change within the system? Is it just about raising the rate? No, it's not just about raising the rate. What we really need is a comprehensive review of the social security system, um, the rate, the structure of payments and, and mutual obligation. Um, we also, and there is a review at the moment, with Workforce Australia need a review of the employment system services system and how that that intersects with social security. Dina, thanks so much for your time today. Dina Bowman, Principal Research Fellow at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. Catherine Eagle, very much appreciate you taking the time for us today. Thank you. Catherine Eagle is Principal Solicitor at the Welfare Rights and Advocacy Service in Western Australia and Dina Bowman is a Principal Research Fellow at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. And you heard a bit earlier too from Brianna Casey who's the CEO of Food Bank Australia. What a lot of ground we cover on Life Matters. Literal ground in a sense next time. Tree changes. Why are city people so keen to up stumps and go bush? It's a trend that really boomed during the pandemic and a new study from the Regional Australia Institute shows that one in five city dwellers are still wanting to make that move. What's driving them and what does it mean for people already living in the places that they move to? We'll explore that on our next episode. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.